Amen. Let me invite you this morning to turn your Bibles to the New Testament, to the Gospel according to Mark, chapter number one. Uh, and I'm uh, overjoyed for a couple of reasons. One was I got to sit on the front row behind that row of boys that just got up and walked out. And I wish you could have heard them singing. I mean, they're like me. They couldn't carry a tune in a bucket, but they enjoyed themselves tremendously. And it was, it was wonderful. Uh, it was great. I mean, they, they were right on it. And uh, I enjoyed that so much. Uh, but I looked at the calendar today. And uh, today is uh, May 27th. Make sure I'm right. Yeah. And uh, 26 years ago today, uh, the Lord saved me. And uh, I, in this very building, uh, I'll never forget uh, that night and, and what it was when the Lord called me out of darkness into his marvelous light. And if I could borrow and modify what Polycarp said in the first century when he was put on trial, uh, he had served the Lord a little bit longer than me, uh, but I can say this over the, next, over the last 26 years, 20 and 6 years have I served him. And he has not once wronged me. And I have found that in 26 years, the Lord has been faithful. The Lord has been merciful. He has been gracious. And I have enjoyed uh, being a Christian and love living uh, for him and love living with him. And that's the joy of the Christian life. And so, uh, so I'm actually 26. I'm not even 30 yet. So. Uh, but we're, we are going through the Gospel of Mark. And if you would, let's look in verses 9 through 11, just three verses this morning. Scripture says in verse 9, In those days, that is, in the days of John the Baptist's ministry, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open. The spirit descending on him like a dove, and a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. This is the word of the Lord. Every four years in America, we witness a spectacular sight, something that is very unusual in world history and other parts of the world. And that is the peaceful and orderly transfer of power. With a simple oath, all the powers in the, of the presidency of the United States are vested in one person. Uh, this quadrennial, quadrennial event takes place on the 20th day of January at high noon in Washington, D.C. on the steps of our nation's capital. And it is an extravaganza, to say the least. It is met with tremendous celebration. It is met with galas and black tie uh, balls, special luncheons for big donors, and an enormous parade. It is, as some would call it, a big deal. It's attended by senators, congressmen, wealthy donors, celebrities, and even average citizens line the streets of Washington to get a glimpse of the new president. It's watched by billions worldwide. And cost for a presidential inauguration is astronomical. Uh, just this past inauguration of President Trump, it is estimated that costs neared over $200 million. $100 million of that was for security alone, as nearly 30,000 
local, state, and federal officers are brought into town to provide security uh, for the citizens and ultimately just one individual. But the main event of the day takes place at high noon when the president-elect places his hand on the Bible and he repeats the oath of office as prescribed in our Constitution. Immediately after saying, so help me God, the military issues a 21-gun salute. The band plays hail to the chief. And for the very first time, the newly inaugurated president speaks to the nation. Now, if the inauguration of a president that happens once every four years is accompanied with such pomp and circumstance, such celebration, how much greater would you think the inauguration of heaven's king would be? I mean, after all, he is not up for re-election every four years. After all, his inauguration would take place one time, and it would be good for all eternity. He would not just preside over a nation, but he would preside over all nations as the king of all and the Lord of glory. When did it happen? What place was it What like? What accompanied this inauguration? Well, Mark tells us that it took place not on a nation's capital, but in a wilderness. This inauguration took place not on a million-dollar platform that took months to uh, construct, but it took place in a muddy Jordan River. It did not take place in the presence of the rich and the powerful, but it took place in the presence of sinful Jews who had come out to be baptized. You see, the event that marked the inauguration of the Lord Jesus Christ as the King of glory, as the promised one who is to come, as Jehovah's suffering servant, is the event we just read about, and that is the baptism of the Lord Jesus. This baptism is, is so significant, it, it, it appears in all four Gospels. Matthew tells us about it. Mark, we just read of his account. And even Luke and John tell us about the baptism of Jesus. You see, it was the baptism of Jesus that really marked the dawning of the kingdom of God. It really, it really recognized the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. And it identifies Jesus to us as being God's only Son and Jehovah's suffering servant. It is in the baptism of Jesus that we see Jesus beginning to live out his earthly purpose publicly. And that is this, that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And so it is this crucial event that I want us to look at this morning. And I want us to look at it from two different angles, uh, two different aspects of his baptism. The first we're going to look at the place of Christ's baptism, that it took place in the wilderness. What does that mean? And then we are going to get more specific as we look as to how it relates to the purpose of Jesus coming. What is this about? Why is Jesus baptized? Was Jesus just being baptized for the sake of being baptized? What does his baptism teach us about his ministry, about his life, about the gospel? And what does it call us to do 
this morning. So, uh, if you would, take your notes. It looks like we're going to be here for three hours. And uh, we'll dive in to, first of all, the place of Christ's baptism. In the opening In the opening words of Mark's gospel, he tells us that John the Baptist is preaching a gospel of repentance. He's calling all Israel to repent of their sins, to prepare for the coming Messiah. And he also tells us where this ministry is taking place. It is taking place in the wilderness. In fact, if you were to look up in verse 5 or verse 4, it says John appeared baptizing In the wilderness. And verse 5 tells us that all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan. So John's ministry begins out in the wilderness. That is a fact that is often overlooked, but it is one of tremendous significance. Because Mark's introduction, the first 15 verses of the book of Mark lays out for us a a wilderness motif, if you will, a pattern of things that take place in the wilderness, and, and it is on purpose. John's ministry takes place in the wilderness. Jesus is baptized in the wilderness. Jesus is tempted in the wilderness, and we must not miss out on the importance of that. Now, to understand the importance of it, first, we've got to put our thinking caps on And think back about the importance of the wilderness in the Old Testament. What happens in the Old Testament in the wilderness? Well, in relation to the nation of Israel, the wilderness is significant because God established Israel's sonship in the wilderness. Where was the first place that God called Israel his son? It was the wilderness. In Exodus 4, God says to Moses, Israel is my firstborn son. It was in the wilderness that God looked at Israel, this small nation that is insignificant in number, that is not of greater value than any other people. But God said of the nation of Israel in the wilderness, you are my firstborn son. That is, you are my unique son. To put it another way, God said of Israel, you are my begotten son in the wilderness. And so what did God do? Well, God prepared a way for his people through the wilderness. He says to Moses in Exodus 23, 20, I will send my angel before you to prepare the way. Do you know that is the exact same phrase, the exact same verse that Mark quotes in verse number two? When he says, behold, I send my messenger Before your face, what is happening in Exodus is God is preparing a way for Israel via the wilderness. And what is God doing in Mark 1? He's preparing a way for Israel again. This time, a true Israel. And he is preparing that way through what? Through the wilderness. And sonship is established in the wilderness. But the wilderness is also another place where God acted among the children of Israel. God judged Israel's disobedience in the wilderness. Now, the wilderness in the Old Testament was not just a place where God said, you are my son, but the wilderness was also a place where Israel failed, and they failed miserably. They failed to believe God. 
They failed to trust God. And it was a place where God poured out his judgment upon the nation. Everyone, 40 years of age and older, died in the wilderness. Only those 40 and younger lived. The wilderness is a place where God's judgment was corporate upon the entire nation. But, but, God knowing this, held out hope for the children of Israel. And the hope was that God promised Israel's reestablishment via the wilderness. Jot down this verse. Hosea chapter 2, verse 14 and 15. Scripture says, Therefore, behold, I will allure her, bring her into the wilderness, and speak kindly to her. Then I will give her her vineyards from there, and the valley of Achor is a door of hope. And she will sing there as in the days of her youth, as in the days when she came up from the land of Egypt. Here God promises in the Old Testament that I'm going to bring Israel out to the wilderness again. And this time when I lure Israel out to the wilderness again, it's going to be very different than it was before. I'm not going to judge her. I'm going to speak kindly to her. I'm going to give hope to them. And I am going to cause them to rejoice because I'm going to bring Israel to the wilderness. And when I bring them to the wilderness, I am going to lead Israel a new exodus out of the wilderness. So there we have the establishment of sonship. There we have divine judgment. And then we have the hope of reestablishment and restoration all in the Old Testament, all taking place in the wilderness. Now, having that context, let's look here in Mark 1 in the New Testament and let's see what God is doing by sending Jesus Christ out into The wilderness. You see, the focus here in Mark 1 is not on a multitude, but it is on one man. It is not on the nation, but it is on the Lord Jesus Christ. And so why is this significant? Why didn't John just baptize Jesus in Jerusalem where there's many holes of water? Why did he go all the way out into the wilderness to be baptized? Why? What's significant about it? What is God doing here in redemptive history? Well, there are some things we have to understand in order to understand why this is significant. The first you have to understand is this, that Jesus is the true Israel of God. Don't miss this. He is the true Israel of God. He is the embodiment of God's true Israel, God's true son. Again, where did God say of Israel, you are my firstborn son? In the wilderness. Where does God first openly declare Jesus as his only begotten son? The wilderness. What does Israel do in the wilderness for 40 years? They fail God. But what does Jesus do in just the next episode in Mark? In the wilderness for 40 days. He overcomes sin and overcomes temptation. And he does what Israel in the Old Testament failed to do. And that is he remains faithful as his true son. Do you ever wonder why in the world God sent Jesus down into Egypt whenever he was an infant? You say, well, he sent him down into Egypt because Herod wanted to have him killed. That's what Matthew tells us. But do you know the real reason why God sent him down into Egypt? So that whenever he was a little bit older, God would appear or an angel would appear to Joseph in a dream and tell Joseph it's okay You and Mary can come back up out of Egypt and bring the child back because Herod's dead. 
And Scripture says this was to fulfill the Scripture. Out of Egypt have I called my son. Do you know who that is a reference to in the Old Testament? Israel. Do you know why that is a reference to Jesus in the New Testament? Because he is the embodiment of the true Israel of God. Now notice here the parallelism of what's going on in verses 5 and verse 9. See if you can see a parallel. In verse 9, it says, All the country of Judea and all Jerusalem. That is, that's, that's Jews, that's Israel. But now look down in verse 9. And in those days, Jesus, one man. What's going on in verse 5? What are they doing? They were going out to him, that is, to John the Baptist. Why? And were being baptized by him. Look in verse 9. What did Jesus do? Scripture said he came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John. Where was Israel baptized in verse 5? In the river Jordan. Where's Jesus baptized in verse 9? In the river Jordan. Do you see the parallelism there? That what is going on with the nation is now going on with one man, with the Lord Jesus Christ. James Edwards was right when he said this of Jesus. Jesus is Israel reduced to one. When you understand Jesus as the true Israel of God, him going to the wilderness makes sense because here we find Jesus goes into the wilderness. What was the wilderness in the Old Testament for Israel? It was a place of what? Judgment. It was a place where the entire nation fell under judgment. And in Jesus, the true Israel, going out into the wilderness, what he is doing here is he is sharing both in the predicament and the heritage of God's people, of the people of God. And this is a reminder to us that as Jesus, the true Israel, goes into the wilderness, the place of judgment, that his ministry is one that will be marked by the judgment of God. Jesus is doing here what Moses did in Exodus. Do you remember when Moses was on the hill and God gave him the Ten Commandments and he told him to go down, go down to the people because there's something going on at the bottom of the mountain and when Moses is coming down, guess what they had done? They had created a golden calf and God's fury and his wrath was ignited against them and God was going to destroy them. But what does Moses do? Moses takes his place alongside of the sinner's and he says, if you judge them, wipe my name out of the book of life as well. What is Moses doing in the wilderness? Moses takes upon himself the predicament of the people of God as an intercessor. And that is exactly what Jesus is doing here. By going to the wilderness, the place of judgment, he is joining alongside of them. But he goes to the wilderness with a purpose. And that purpose, we'll see a little bit later, is to lead a new exodus. What does God promise in the Old Testament to do? To reestablish, to restore Israel to its rightful place via the wilderness. And that is exactly what Jesus Christ is doing here. He comes out of the wilderness after being baptized, after being tempted. He comes out of the wilderness as the new fulfillment of God's Old Testament promise to create a new Israel that will be faithful to God. 
So, beloved, don't just read that Jesus was baptized in the wilderness. See the significance of Jesus going out into the wilderness and then coming out of the wilderness and beginning his public ministry. Now, having said all that, I think there is great significance in Christ's baptism. And that's the second thing I want us to consider. Not just the place where it takes place, but let's consider the act of his baptism itself. Here's a couple questions I just want to ask to kind of set the stage when I'm thinking. If Jesus was perfect and sinless, why did he submit to John's baptism? I mean, after all, John's baptism was a baptism of what? Repentance. And if you're sinless, do you have anything to repent of? No, you have nothing to repent of. Anyone who says they have nothing to repent of or nothing to be forgiven for is lying because we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. But Jesus hadn't. Jesus was perfect. He was sinless. So why is he baptized by John? John doesn't even really understand it either because John, in one of the gospel accounts, says, wait a minute, I have need to be baptized by you. And there's an irony here. John has just said that the one who's coming after me is going to baptize you with a greater baptism. He's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And then yet he comes, the baptizer comes, to be baptized by water, by John in the River Jordan. What is he showing us here? What does it show us about Christ's earthly ministry? What does it show us about the Father? Why is the Father pleased with this? What does this tell us about the Holy Spirit? What does this tell us about Christ's ministry? Well, there are some truth. There's one truth and then one, a few questions that we're going to ask. And I think when you read about Christ's baptism, there is one conclusive truth you have to reach. You cannot overlook it, and that is this. Our salvation is Trinitarian. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, when Jesus is baptized, you find all persons of the Godhead present. Jesus, the Son, is baptized. The Holy Spirit descends like a dove. God the Father speaks, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. You see, Scripture teaches that there is one God. There is not two gods. There are not three gods. There are not four gods. There is one God. But that one God exists in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. They are co-equal. The Son is no more is not greater than the Spirit, and the Spirit is not greater than the Father, and the Father is not greater than the, the Son. They are co-equal. They are co-eternal. One is not older than the other. They are eternal. They are co-essential. And they are one. Now, do I understand this? Absolutely not. But do I believe it? With all of my heart. Spurgeon said, define the Trinity and you'll lose your mind. Deny the Trinity and you will lose your soul. And so it is here in this passage we see all the members of the Godhead who are at work in this baptism. What are they doing? Well, first we see that the Son is obeying. The Son is obeying. As people are being called out to be baptized in the Jordan River, what they're actually doing, they're actually submitting to God's will. They're submitting to what God requires of them. They're repenting of their sin. They're preparing their heart for the arrival of the Messiah. And they are getting ready for Jesus to come. And so their baptism is actually an act of submission. 
So again, why is Jesus baptized? He has nothing to be prepared for. He's the one for which everyone is getting prepared. He has nothing to repent of. So why is he baptized like this? Well, there's at least three reasons I can find in Scripture why Jesus submits to this baptism of John the Baptist. First, he submits because it's an identification with sinners. He identifies with sinners. John's baptism was for repentant sinners. But Jesus, we've already established, has nothing to repent of. Yet, when he is baptized, he is standing in the place of sinners. What was it Isaiah said of the suffering servant? He is numbered with the transgressors. What was it he said that he would look like us? If you were a Jew standing on the shore of the river Jordan, you wouldn't know that this was the Messiah going down into the water. What would it look like to you? It would look like just some sinner who's going in there, who's being baptized. And what Jesus is doing, he is showing us that his purpose in coming to this earth, though he is the king of glory, though he is the son of God eternal in heaven, he comes to this earth to be identified with sinners, to stand in the place of sinners, to be numbered with transgressors, to be numbered amongst sinners. Paul put it this way. Paul says that God for our sake has made him to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Beloved, this is a foretaste of Calvary. This is a snapshot of what is going to take place three plus years down the road when he again is going to stand in the place of sinners. Except he's not going to stand in the muddy river Jordan in the place of sinners, but he is going to be nailed to a Roman-made cross in the place of sinners. He is not going to be baptized as a sinner being numbered amongst them in Jordan, but he is going to be baptized with the fire of God's wrath in our place on the cross of Calvary, and this foreshadows that event. So Jesus, in being baptized, is identifying with sinners. But there's another reason. It's an example for saints. You see, when Jesus is baptized, he's submitting to the Father's will. It is a will that required him to identify with sinners on the cross. And when Jesus, when the Son of God leaves heaven to come to this earth as a human being, he knows he's coming in order to die for sinners. And so when Jesus comes here and he, he identifies with sinners by being baptized, he is showing us what it means to submit and to surrender to the will of God. You know, baptism is not some man-made right. It is not some right that the church ordained or come up with. It is not some man-made tradition. It is a command from God. He commands his followers to follow him in in baptism, to identify with him through baptism. John Piper says that if you ask what the decisive public way of taking a Christian stand was in the New Testament, the answer is simple. It was through baptism. You see, because what happened? When Jesus was baptized, who did he identify with? Us, sinners. He took the place of the sinful. 
When we're baptized, who do we identify with? We identify with him, the sinless one. When, 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 some, when I baptize someone, it is a reminder, it is a declaration to the world that the person who is being baptized is saying this. When Jesus died, I died with him. When Jesus was buried, I was buried with him. But when Jesus was raised to eternal life, never to die again, I now have been raised to eternal life, never to die again. When he died, I died. When he was buried, I was buried. And when he was raised, I was raised. Therefore, his life is my life. That's the scandal of the gospel. That's the great exchange. And that's a good exchange for us, is to identify with Jesus. But also, it is a picture of salvation. You see, Jesus' baptism foreshadows what's going to take place on the cross of Calvary. Baptism is a picture of both death and resurrection. What happens? Jesus, by the hands of another, John the Baptist, is placed down into the water, which is a picture of Jesus who will, by the hand of another, be delivered over to death. And then Jesus is placed all the way underneath the water. Why? Because it is a picture of Jesus being buried in the earth, of Jesus being buried in the tomb. But Jesus, by the hand of another, John, is brought up out of the water, a picture of what will happen on the third day after he dies. That Jesus will be raised from the dead by the glory of the, of the Father. The Holy Spirit, who is the life-giving agent, will quicken the dead body of the Son of God and bring him out of the grave and bring him out from the dead. And thus, Jesus is showing us, he's given us a synopsis of his entire ministry, that he came to die, he came to be buried, but thank God he came to be raised again to life eternal and life everlasting, and he is putting it on display here. All to see. The Son is obeying the Heavenly Father, submitting to baptism. But we find the second person or the third person of the Trinity, the, the Holy Spirit, is anointing. Now, look here what happens. When Jesus is baptized, the Bible says in verse 10, and when he came up out of the water, that's Jesus, immediately, there's one of Mark's favorite words. Immediately, what happens? Two things. One, he saw the heavens being torn apart and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. Isaiah 64 said this. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down that the mountains might quake at your presence. Isaiah was longing and praying in the in those passages that deal with the suffering servant for the day that he would come and his presence would be real and his presence would be marked by what? By the rending of heaven, by the tearing of the heavens. And here now that prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled as the heavens opened up and now the spirit descends down upon Jesus like a dove. Now there are some who ascribe to what is known as adoptionism in this passage. They say that Jesus was no different than you and me for the first 30 years of his life. 
and then when the Spirit comes upon him, he is adopted as the Son of God at this moment. That's not true. Um, that is heresy. Uh, furthermore, the Son of God was always the Son of God, eternally the Son of God, and he existed as the Son of God forever. As a matter of fact, he was as much the Son of God when he was in Mary's womb as he was standing here in the muddy Jordan River. Okay? Uh, there are some who believe Jesus here was then filled with the Spirit of God. Not so. He, he's God. He, he was full of the Spirit of God from his mother's womb. I mean, he was placed there by the Spirit of God. So why does the Holy Spirit do this? Again, this is the inauguration of heaven's king. What oftentimes happened in the Old Testament when God would call a prophet or God would call a person to be king, what would he do? He would give them a portion of his Holy Spirit for a time to equip them for the task at hand. That's what we would refer to as the anointing of the Spirit. How was it that David was selected to be the king of Israel? What happened when Samuel goes to Jesse's house? He goes to Jesse's house. Jesse lines up his sons, and Samuel looks at them from oldest to the youngest, and he says, nope, not you, not you, not you, not you, not you. He gets to all of them, and he just stops, and he looks at Jesse, and he says, hey, don't you have another son? And Jesse says, yeah, I got a little redheaded fellow, a little ruddy boy out there tending the, the sheep. Now, he, he's not much to look at. He's a little scrawny outfit, but uh, uh, I'll send for him. What Samuel do? I love what he does. He turns to his other sons, and he says, don't sit down till he comes. In other words, you stay attentive till the king gets here. And when David arrives, Samuel takes a, a, a cruise of oil and pours it over top of him to anoint him, to set him apart, to show the others that this is indeed the king. That oil was symbolic of the Holy Spirit of God. And here what God is doing is for John and for, for John to see. He is saying to one and all that this is my king. He has been anointed not with oil, but with the Holy Spirit of God for the task before him to rule and to reign as king. And so the Spirit descends like a dove. Why a dove? Now, you know, there's much debate about why a dove. Descending down like a dove, the Spirit does. But I think it's a reference to what God did in creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And then what happens in verse 2? And the Spirit of God moved across the waters. Do you know what that word in Hebrew literally means? It means he brooded like a dove, like a bird over the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. You have the brooding of the Holy Spirit in creation. That brought about this created order. And so it should not shock us that as Jesus comes as the new Adam to create a new order, a new heaven and a new earth, he does so through the agent and the operation of the Holy Spirit of God. Here comes the new creation birthed forth from what Christ is going to do through the power of the Holy Spirit of of God, the Spirit anointing Jesus. This is the King. But then we also find the Father declaring. The Bible says in verse 11 that a voice came from heaven. We know from Matthew's account, and we know from John's account, we know from Luke's account whose voice this is. This is the voice of God the Father. What does he say? 
You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. What a declaration. In this declaration, God tells us at least three things about Jesus. One, he tells us that Jesus is God's beloved son. You remember in the Old Testament that the Bible says that God gave Abraham a son by the name of Isaac. And that that was the son of promise. And what was Abraham supposed to do with Isaac? What does God tell him to do? Take now your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you what? Whom you love. And sacrifice him on a hill that I will show you. God says here of Abraham and Isaac, that Isaac is Abraham's only son. Now, Abraham already had a a son. How could God say Isaac was his only son? Because he was the son of, of promise. But he calls him his only son whom he loved. And this is the father's declaration of the son and is the declaration of the father's love for the son. You see, People who oftentimes say that God created the heavens and the earth and he created us so that he would have someone to love him, they really create a God who is in need of us. God did not need us to love him. You say, what good is it to be God if you can't feel love? Beloved, God did not not feel love in eternity. There was love. Who? Who? The Father loved the Son, and the Son loved the Father. And there was that glorious intra-Trinitarian love that had always existed. The Father always loved the Son. The Son always loved the Father. And they did not need to feel love, for they had felt it from one another throughout all eternity. And thus, when the Son comes to this earth, God proclaims that love. God demonstrates that love. God shows that love. This is the one in whom I love. Jesus says over and over again throughout his ministry, yes, the Father loves me. I do this because the Father loves me. The Father loves me because I lay down my life. The Father loves me because I obey him. And why does Jesus go to the cross? He goes to the cross because he loves the Father. Why does the Father gather a group of people together? Why does he redeem the elect? He does so because he loves the Son. And what you have in the Bible is that great intra-Trinitarian love that exists between the Father and the Son. And here it is on display for one and all to see. He is my beloved Son. You know the only reason God blesses us? Paul tells us why in Ephesians 1. Because he has blessed us in the Beloved. The beloved in Ephesians 1, it is the one in whom the Father loves, and it is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. He is God's beloved Son, but He is also Israel's King. The phrase, you are my son, comes from Psalm 2, a messianic psalm, a promised psalm in which God promises that the Messiah is also going to be the King. Because one of the things in the Old Testament Uh, that you see play out is when a man is anointed king over Israel, over Judah, God calls them his son, David. God called him his son. Uh, In fact, in one psalm, he says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. He uses messianic language in describing the king. 
And thus, when he looks down from heaven and declares, you are my son, again, this is a reminder that Jesus Christ is the king who was promised in the Old Testament. As as for me, he says, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son. Today have I begotten you. And so we find the combination both of son and both of king. And some people in the New Testament got this. You remember Nathaniel's profession of faith in John chapter 1? When Philip came and he said, hey, we found him whom the prophets and the scriptures speak of. Come see him. And then Nathaniel said, oh, he's from Nazareth. Can any good thing come out of there? And then Jesus said to Nathaniel, you know, before Philip saw you, before Philip called you, I saw you underneath the tree. What did Nathaniel say? Nathaniel responds, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, the King of Israel. And here we have that same declaration as Jesus, both as Son of God and King of Israel, but ultimately as well. We have here in this declaration the truth that Jesus is the suffering servant of Yahweh. That last phrase, with you I am well pleased. That is not just the Father looking down and saying, I am pleased at this moment. I delight in this moment because of what you are doing. It goes far deeper than that. Throughout the book of Isaiah, and Mark really loves the book of Isaiah. (laughs) Throughout the book of Isaiah, we find a song of suffering that takes place throughout Isaiah's pages as he speaks of the coming Savior, the coming Messiah. And of all the things that the Messiah is going to be, the Lord of glory, wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, Emmanuel, God with us. One of the things the Messiah is also going to be is that suffering servant of Jehovah. Now, what Isaiah says in Isaiah 42, what Brother Teddy read in our scripture reading is key. Because God says this, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him And he will bring forth justice to all the nations. Did you see what God said he's going to do with that servant who is going to come? It's the exact same thing he does with Jesus here. He declares his pleasure in him. He places his spirit upon him. And he delights in him because what he is going to do. And remember, this is just a foreshadow of the cross, of the ultimate purpose of the Son of God in coming to this earth. And Isaiah prophesied that as well. Isaiah put it this way. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when he has made his soul an offering for sin. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. And the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul shall he look and shall be satisfied. You see, the father understands the significance of this moment. You want to know the pleasure of God? You want to know the delight of God? When God looked down at that muddy Jordan River, he knew what was going to take place. And the one who delighted in the sun at the river would be the one who would in some way delight in the sun on the cross for what he was doing. And yet, at the same time, he would pour out his wrath on his son. For on the cross, Jesus would bear our sins in his body on the tree. And with our sins, he would 
bear the full fury of the wrath of God in our place. On Wednesday night, we've been studying the doctrine of hell. We've been studying the issue of hell. And we have seen how horrible and how terrible hell is. That hell is forever. When you go, you don't get out. That hell is painful. That what makes hell hell is that it is the full fury of the wrath of God poured out, unbridled, on people forever. Because what hell is, hell is punishment for sinning against an infinite God. And if you sin against an infinite God, the punishment for that sin is infinite punishment. But the glory of the cross is that Jesus stands in our place. He's numbered among transgressors. He dies with two criminals. And he dies in your place and he dies in my place to bear the wrath of God for us so that we, being dead to sin, could live under righteousness. Beloved, he comes to suffer your sin in your place, to die the death you deserve to die, to for a few hours on the cross to endure infinitely the hell that you deserve so that you could be saved. That's why he comes. He comes to bear in his body the sins of his people and bear the full fury of God's wrath for them. That's what his baptism is all about. And so in response to that, I've got two questions that you need to ask yourself, that we all ought to ask ourselves. The first question that we ought to ask ourselves from this text is this. Have I identified with Jesus through baptism? If you're here today and you are saved and you've trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior, you've repented of your sin, have you followed his example of submission and obedience and followed him in baptism? After all, that is one of the things he told his disciples to do. Go into all the world and preach the gospel. To teach everyone what I've commanded you. To baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. To teach them all things. And lo, I'm with you always to the end of the earth. It was a command from God. Now salvation does not save an individual. But do you know? It is a Christian's way of identifying with the Lord Jesus Christ. You see the pattern all through the book of Acts. They believed and they were what? They were baptized. They believed and they were baptized. They believed and they were baptized. Uh, It is a way of identifying with Christ. So ask yourself, have I identified with Christ through baptism in obedience to the Heavenly Father's command? But secondly, ask this. Have I trusted Jesus through faith and repentance? You see, that's what the Jews were doing here. They were trusting. They were looking for Christ. They were acting out in obedience, repenting of their sins. Have you done that? You see, you have to put the cart before, you have to get the cart before, the horse before the cart. You have to get it right. You can be baptized until the fish know your name. But unless you have truly repented of your sin, and you have faith in Christ Jesus in your heart, it will do you no good. It will be no different than the other washings that you see the Pharisees in the New Testament partake of. Because what God does, he does first in the heart. And how is a person saved? You're saved by trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, by believing in him, by repenting of your sin, by turning from your sin. 
And faith produces repentance. As I said, 26 years ago, I said in this very church house, I heard the gospel the Lord Jesus Christ preached. And that night, God did a work in my heart. I believed. I repented. Turned from sin to Christ. And that is exactly what he requires of you to do today. So I ask you, have you done that? Or, or are you waiting to face God without having done that? Again, if people in Mark 1 are repenting of their sin, being baptized in order to prepare for the coming of the Messiah, when he was going to come in grace and mercy and die for sinners on the cross, how much more should you prepare for the coming of Jesus? Who, when he comes again, he is not coming as the man of sorrows. He is not coming as Jehovah's suffering servant. He is coming as the sovereign Lord and judge of all who will execute judgment on all. How much more should you prepare to meet him? And how do you prepare to meet him? You prepare to meet him by faith. You trust in him and him alone for your salvation. You repent of your sin and you run to Jesus Christ. That is how you prepare. And so today... Know this, that the Jesus who was baptized in the Jordan is the Jesus who on the cross died and the tomb was buried and on that glorious Sunday morning was raised again to life in order to save. And if you will believe that, if you will trust that, if you will cling to that today and repent of your sins, I know what he'll do for you. He will forgive you of your sins. He will fill you with his Holy Spirit. He will give you eternal life and he will take you to heaven to be with him when life here is over. Have you never done that? Then do it now as we pray. Father, as I come to you today in Christ's name, I thank you for what you did in sending your son. That he came as a suffering servant to bleed, to suffer, and to die in the place of sinners. And Father, I ask now for those who are here who do not know you as their Father, who do not know Christ as their Lord and Savior, that you would call them and draw them, give them faith to believe this gospel message so that they could be saved. Lord, there may be people here who, who today they need to make up their mind that yes, they believe in you, they trust in you, and now they need to follow you in, in baptism to follow that example. Father, work in their hearts, I pray. And God, I pray that this service will be one that will crown you with great honor, with great glory, and that you would be made much of in what has been said and done here. But for those, again, who do not know you, we beg you, Father, to do what only you can do. Save them today. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Amen. Let's stand this morning.